All eyes across the world are on Ukraine. But what about the damage that's being done from that very war to people thousands of miles away? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It's been very challenging to keep the focus on what is really the greatest imminent threat to planet Earth, climate change. Well, now the Russian invasion of Ukraine placed whatever level of attention had finally started to catch up with the seriousness of the threat. The world's attention on global warming has been pushed into the back seat. And that's not good. And it's not just the camera-grabbing drama of mass murder in Ukraine. What we see, thanks to the brave journalists, nightmarish explosions, the unthinkable destruction, the deaths, the suffering, the exodus of millions, it all is just the front page of a much bigger, if more subtle, story. If one is as focused on the First World War as your host here is, that's me, the reminders of that horror on a grand scale of that war displayed were just the tip of the disasters across the world left over from that hundred years ago mad catastrophe. The unknown consequences of this war for the entire world today, as back then, are an as yet unknown threat looming over everyone everywhere, especially the poor of the world. Well, our guest today, Rajan Menon, brings, uh, begins to spell it out in uh, Tom Dispatch why the conflict in Ukraine is a disaster for the poor of this planet. And that's even though they live thousands of miles away. Rajan Menon, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Bert. Rajan Menon is the Emeritus Ann and Bernard Spitzer Chair in Political Science at the City University of New York. He's a senior research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, Columbia University, and a Global Ethics Fellow at the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs. Ethics and International Affairs? I suppose it could happen. Uh, previously, he was professor and chairman in the Department of International Relations at, at Lehigh University. He's been a fellow at the New America Foundation in Washington, D.C., an academic uh, fellow and senior advisor at the Carnegie Corporation of New York, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, he has taught at Columbia University and Vanderbilt University and served as Special Assistant for Arms Control and National Security to Congressman Steve Solars, while an International Affairs Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, of which he's a member. His current work concerns American foreign and national security policy, international security, globalization, and the international relations of Asia and Russia and other post-Soviet states. And in your spare time, oh my goodness, <laughs> post-Soviet states. I remember when there was hope that what came after the Soviet Union would have chosen a different course. But as happens so often in history, the West seemed to 
ignore the opportunities for respect and a new cooperation for a new world. The nationalists in Russia played on the disorder, and instead of bringing economic and political stability, power became ever more concentrated in a new version of Tsarist aggression and intent to be one of the big boys on the world stage. There's a long history of remarkable brutality on the part of Russian nationalist military against other nations from at least the First World War. And yet, here we are again. But the war in Ukraine is not just about what it appears to be. It has transformed. As American Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said, the goal is to weaken Russia forever. Let me repeat that. The goal is to weaken Russia forever. And as Tom Engelhardt, Engelhardt put it, this is a bad take, too, of the Cold War of the last century. Quite bad indeed. And as the frame of last century's Cold War was applied to so many truly unrelated situations in the 20th century, hundreds of thousands of lives and limbs were lost, quite unnecessarily. And the economic injustices of the world continued unabated. And today we must consider what a disaster the invasion of Ukraine is already proving to be for so many, so many on this wounded planet of ours. And it's just in the early stages of the war. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And as an always curious reader about the First World War and its effects, one of the books I read was John Maynard Keynes' The Economic Consequences of Peace. Quite short book, but impressive as heck. Well, what was controversial about that book, and what did it foresee regarding long-term economic consequences of that war? Well, Bert, as happened at the end of the Cold War, there was a great deal of euphoria and triumphalism on the side that felt it had won, in that case, World War I, in this case, the Cold War. And the desire was to impose a sort of victor's peace. Now, the two situations are not obviously parallel, but Keynes warned that in the long term, it would be not a prudent policy to do that, and that there would be a backlash, and that the economic and political consequences would engulf not just Germany, but also the rest of Europe. Now, just very quickly, because I don't want to bore your audience with a lot of details. After the Cold War, there was another way to do things. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last Soviet president, as you know, suggested, well, the Cold War is over, so why don't we supplant NATO and the Warsaw Pact with a trans-European security order from Mm. the Atlantic to the Ural Mountains, U-R-A-L, mm-hmm. the mountains that divide European Russia from Asia, as you know, and um, try to have an inclusive peace. The United States was not interested in it at the time, and Gorbachev was holding a very weak hand. He, his economy was in tatters. He was facing internal rebellion. And rather than do that, the United States eventually chose the concept began under Clinton, although the ground for it was laid under the first President uh, Bush, George H.W. Bush, to expand NATO. At the time, many people, myself included, but many more prominent people, warned that 
there would be a, de- a backlash. The day of reckoning would come, and that as Gorbachev predicted, and Yeltsin after him, and Putin after him. So it's important to realize that no Soviet or Russian leader looked favorably on NATO expansion. That would bring to the fore in Russia forces that we would come to dislike and would view as not congenial to our values. And that in, for, that in fact is what has happened. I want to make clear that the apprehensions about NATO expansion do not justify right. Russia's preventive war against Ukraine, but it is too pat a story to tell to exclude that background from what is happening now. Indeed, yes. It doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. <laughs> the, the First World War, the Great War, didn't suddenly take place with uh, Gavrio Principe uh, <laughs> shooting. You know, it's been building. There's a lot of logic to it. It was building for a long, yeah. long time. And discussion of the alleged causes of Russia's war against Ukraine was skimmed over remarkably easily back in the run-up to the invasion. I remember how how quickly Putin, Putin's items for negotiation were just brushed aside. And I remember the news media saying, well, that's not going to happen. It's like, what? Wait a minute. He, he had some specific negotiation positions that, quite frankly, didn't seem entirely unreasonable. They were afraid of NATO. But of course, no matter the, as you agree, of course, no matter the causes and missed opportunities, is chosen tactic of, of total war, meaning mass murder of civilians, has shocked the world. Uh, I, and with so many examples of political advi- violence, the cameras and microphones focus on uh, what in the trades is called the bang-bang. <laughs> you write that in addition to the mounting evidence of atrocities, the war's potential long-term economic effects in and beyond Ukraine haven't attracted nearly as much attention for understandable reasons. It's not the bang-bang. Before we look at those long-term effects, what are some of the reasons they don't get the attention? Is it just too complicated, or or what do you think? Well, to put it in stark and somewhat crude terms, the firing of guns and the unearthing of dead bodies makes for better copy than inflation in GDP figures. And there is, I think, in the Western press, a much greater tendency to devote attention to places that are considered kindred to us and less space to places that are considered remote and distant. But I just want to add one point here, if I may, because you raised an issue that that deserves some consideration, and that is Putin's pre-war demands. Now, as you know, this crisis started revving up last March when a clear sign occurred that Russian forces were building up on Ukraine's border, 1,270 mile land border. And then by the end of this last year, excuse me, November, December, the numbers had reached very, very high, 150,000, 170,000. As that was cracking up, Putin wanted written guarantees on two measures. One, that NATO would stop deploying forces on the Eastern Front. It wasn't deploying them permanently, but on a rotational basis. Mm. That is, uh, troops from outside those countries. 
And the second was uh, Ukraine's status, and it's not joining NATO. Right. Instead of entering into discussions with him on the ground that that would be negotiating with a gun put to one's head, mm. the offer was not taken up. And instead, the United States and NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg waxed eloquently about Ukraine's right to choose its alliances and to engage in self-determination. That encouraged the Ukrainians to refuse to think about neutrality. Now, in principle, countries can choose the alliances to which they belong, but that choice often in the brutal reality of international politics can't be abstracted from the strategic situations. Now, what has happened after the war is that the same president, President Zelensky of Ukraine, said at one point, we are now willing to talk about neutrality, providing it's a qualified neutrality with guarantees from the West and so on. So what was possible after the war was not possible before the war. Now, would a deal on neutrality have stopped the war? I have no way of telling. Right. No one knows. But we do know this. It was never tried. Right. And I think that was an opportunity missed. And so we're now into this. Now, to the second part of your of your question. You can look at the war in Ukraine as a series of concentric circles in terms of economic consequence. Huh. Obviously, the most direct and immediate and visceral impact is in Ukraine itself. Huge parts of the country have been decimated. There have been war crimes. The southern coast is essentially blockaded because even though the Russians don't control by land force the entire coastline, they control the Azov Sea and the Black Sea, more importantly. And 80% of Ukraine's exports are shipborne. So this has basically choked off the Ukrainian economy. The Ukrainian finance minister, I think, gave the estimate that if you add up all of the costs, repairing infrastructure, reintegrating IDPs and refugees, they total, by the way, about 20% of the population. That's huge. And um, making up post-war losses, the price tag is something like already $600 billion, And that was about three weeks ago. So we're looking at a colossal price tag and many years, if not decades, before this country will be whole again. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible human tragedy. And no country comes out of this quickly and mm. in a way that's unscarred. So that's the direct economic effect in, in right. Ukraine. That's the inner circle. Right. Right. The second circle is the rest of the West. Here we see that growth rates for Europe... The United States, the Asia-Pacific also, although not to that degree, have been downgraded. The forecasts have been downgraded, and inflation rates are higher. So we have yet to see the full effects of what the war will have on our own economy, employment, real incomes, and so on. I think it's going to get worse rather than better. If you look at things such as energy prices or the rate of inflation in this country, which is now the highest in many decades, ditto in Europe, much worse for the final concentric circle. That is the rest of the world. And beyond that, the so-called low-income countries, the poorest countries, they are saddled in debt. That debt burden is going to increase because every time Western banks raise their interest rates, it means it costs more for them to borrow. 
Many of them already set aside a significant proportion of their income, export income earnings for debt repayment. Take right. Egypt, which is actually not a low-income country, sets aside 41%. Sri Lanka just defaulted on its debt, not because of the Ukraine war directly, because this was a train wreck in the making, but certainly this hasn't helped. And then, of course, there are shortages of everything from cooking oil to food in places like Yemen that are desperately right. poor and all, have already experienced famine. So, it, it, you know, what can I tell you? It's a mess. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly an understatement. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Professor Rajan Menon, who's uh, written Why the Conflict in Ukraine is a Disaster for the Poor of This Planet. You know, you can see what, you, you know, what there is on the uh, network news, but these concentric circles. You know, I, I'm reminded a little bit about, uh, you know, Americans, we like our stuff. We want good stuff, cheap, and we don't think about the effects of where it comes from and how it's made and the pollution it's causing. We, we just don't think about that. And this war is, I suppose, a more dramatic version of that even, actually, that uh, there's so many different as you say, concentric circles that uh, are affecting the entire world that, you know, if we focus on the, the bang bang in, uh, in Ukraine, we're not seeing that, but we need to see that. And there were opportunities, but that's another story. In the globalized world of the 2020s, not much is really isolated one country to the next. I mean, borders don't close things off. Americans being so incredibly focused on immediately and remarkably oblivious to long-term consequences like gas prices. Never mind that petrol in Europe has, has been around twice what we pay at the pump for years. The war uh, in Ukraine first hits American consumers here. And that's the way we see it here. In what ways will Americans be affected? And why are we so much better able to cope with them than perhaps the uh, other uh, European nations and uh, nations that, that aren't as wealthy? Well, for one thing, the United States is a wealthy country. Yes. And so is Europe. But it's very important to realize, and of course you know this, but it is worth repeating, there are substantial problems of poverty in this country. Uh, it is shocking, yeah. for example, that we have the second or third highest rate of child poverty in the entire OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, call it the Rich Country Club of 30-odd countries. And uh, in a city like New York, where I live, the uh, evidence of poverty is, is readily visible because the country is the city is both economically and racially segregated, not uh, legally right. in apartheid terms, but you walk around and it's, jury, it's pretty clear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, in, in the West in the United States, there is at least a social safety net in Europe, a much more robust one. Ours yes. is rather threadbare yes. to help cushion the shock for the least well off. Uh, not so in many countries that are poor. They can't afford it. There's a great deal of corruption. And there's almost next to no social security net. And these individuals who will be affected by this are already living at the margins of life. And if you look at the proportion of their income that they spend on basic necessities like food, water, 
utilities and transportation, it is substantially higher than the proportion that would be spent even by someone who would be considered poor in the United States. Yeah, it's we have to face realities like that at some point. Ukraine, of course, has been known for a long time as the breadbasket of Central and Eastern Europe. And as the world has become increasingly globalized, Russia and Ukraine both account for a major share of the world's wheat. Then there's sunflower oil. You point out that uh, the Middle East and India get nearly all, a lot of their cooking oil from Russia and Ukraine, nearly all of it. Uh, and a key element of the of global trade, of course, is shipping. Access to those ships has been, as you point out, cut for Ukraine. So you say the the rich countries will be better able to deal with the economic effects of of the war. Uh, but I, I don't think we're as reliant on sunflower oil. I mean that that's a big deal. The poorer countries, though, thousands of miles away. So this this particular uh, factor, how how will those countries be affected by the war in Ukraine? Well, what's happened because of the scarcity of the commodities you mentioned is countries are circling the wagons and trying to take care of their own by not permitting exports and trying to buy up short-term supplies as best they can. Now, the result of everybody does that is pretty obvious that prices rise even further. And so there's no sign that we're going to come out of this anytime soon, the global economy. My own feeling is that we're only seeing the initial waves. I mean, if you say, were to ever say, I don't really believe in globalization, not that you're saying it, this would be exhibit A to, to show how a war in a country that's thousands of miles away from the United States not to mention, say, uh, Somalia <laughs> or Yemen, yeah. um, the effects of that war have radiated outwards and had an effect very, very quickly. I will say that for our own political system, President Biden's approval ratings for good or ill on the economy are already not very good. Mm -hmm. And at some point, as the midterms near... The Republicans are not going to help him by saying, oh, all of this is Mr. Putin's fault and Mr. Biden has been an exemplary steward of the economy. They're going to say this is all another example of democratic economic mismanagement. At the end of the day, pocketbook issues are going to matter to the American electorate. And the chances for Dem the Democrats doing well in the midterms, I'm told by people who follow it much closer than I, are already not very good. And we could see them get even worse. So we will have a political ricochet effect as well. Then comes the question, if the war continues to drag on, there are some, by the way, and I have no idea how long it's going to last, mm. who say it could take decades. I mean, I rather doubt that, but let's stipulate that it's a few years. Um, you could see things such as Ukraine fatigue. Now, let me give you mm. a concrete example. The EU is now debating ending oil imports from Russia. Immediately, some countries led by Hungary have said, oh, we, we can't do that. Hungary's been born, jo joined by the Czech Republic and Slovakia saying we need more time. And so if you want to pile on additional pressure to, to Russia and hit it where it really hurts, then you are going to pay the cost as well. And the question is, how long does the coalition exerting pressure 
have the will to stand up as one when the pain begins to affect its members as well. That's an interesting point. I hadn't even uh, thought about that. That, Yeah, there's the pressure that, that we put on, but others are probably feeling it more than we are. And yet they didn't have, well... There's, it could have. It there were opportunities. Let's just say there were opportunities uh, along the way. But here we are, and it's a brutal, horrible uh, uh, war that's going on against uh, the yeah. people of Ukraine. One other thing, if I could just quote oh, really quickly, because hey. I forgot to I forgot to add this, and that's this. So we have turned, as have the Brits, to the Gulf countries and said, "You've got to pump more oil because yeah. you know you have to help us bring down these prices." And they're saying, "High prices? Well, what's wrong with that? We rather like it." And so it hasn't been the case that the the oil-producing uh, countries of the Persian Gulf have said, we're going to pump, pump more oil. Uh, some of them actually have been improving their relationships with, with Russia because of differences with the United States. So don't look for relief from the Persian Gulf states who will say, well, we've got to get, give the Americans and the Europeans a break by bringing down the price of oil. So that doesn't look like it's going to happen either. Now, again, Europe feels this worse than we do because we are less import-reliant on energy than they are. They're much more import-reliant. About 26% of oil, and I'm not even talking about gas, which is even higher, uh, that they import. It varies by country, of course, comes from Russia. Well, yeah, they oil is... Uh largely what it's about and i think about uh you know the oil producing gulf states and geopolitics in that region interesting stuff there's been a real power struggle between say the saudi government and the iran government and my impression is that that whole huge area is quite divided between those two poles and I, and obviously the Saudi Arabians uh, had the, have had this terrible, terrible war against uh, the people of Yemen for a long time. And it's been called a, a proxy war. But I wonder, here's another potential un, unforeseen effect of the war in Ukraine with regard to the geopolitics of that region. Your thoughts? Well, there has been, as you have noted, differences longstanding between Iran and Saudi Arabia and its allies in the Persian Gulf. That's absolutely correct, but not on oil prices. Yeah. For two reasons, they both benefit from higher prices, but the Iranians are in no mood to do us any favors, certainly. No. Because they're under sanctions, um, the Russians are under sanctions, so the, the Iranians have felt the burden of sanctions themselves. So we can't really now look for any, any um, easing of the pressure from the Persian Gulf oil countries. The the only way out of this box, and I think you alluded to this in the beginning when you talk about, talked about climate change, is to reduce dependence on hydrocarbons. Yes. But bear in mind that if you add up now the money that's been promised in the latest so-called Lend-Lease program right. to mm -hmm. Ukraine, about $40 billion, and then the five or six billion that's been uh, provided before that, you're bumping up close to the entire budget for this year of the State Department. Now, yeah. I'm not begrudging Ukrainians the money, 
but saying that there's only so much to go around. And if we had invested that kind of money, for example, in climate change, or let's take another example, in vaccinating the rest of the world, and mm. this virus is not going to go away as long as it's able to mutate in many parts of the world where, despite the commitment to the system called COVAX, COVX, this UN program to vaccinate the rest of the world, countries that can't afford it, of course, that money has to be funded largely from the West, it's largely not done what it set out to do. So there, there is certainly a security problem that Ukraine faces, and I understand the need to help it defend itself, but there is a sense in which we have a kind of militarized conception of security, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think of what people worry about on a day-to-day -day basis, they are basic things, the cost of housing, the cost of basic necessities, the loss of job, the lack of insurance, and so on. These things, unfortunately, are not fed into the standard view of what is mm. national security. I mean, mm. think about what keeps most people uh, insecure most of the year, thinking about being insecure. It's probably not the, the thought of a bomb falling on their heads so much as these other yeah. matters. And these other things, the economic necessities of life, are going to be much more difficult because of the war in Ukraine. One other thing about the price of oil, you know, it's not just how much am I paying at the pump. It, it affects everything. So take, for example, diesel fuel, mm -hmm. which runs our trucking industry. Yes. That's gone up a lot, a lot, which means every single item that's carried on any of those 18-wheelers that you see speeding up and down I-89, you and I yeah. have a connection to New Hampshire, as, I, uh, as, as we've chatted before, all those things are going to cost more. Uh, air transportation rates, let me give you an example. The, the Russians have closed out their airspace to about 30 countries. You're punishing us, you can't cross our airspace. Ooh. That means that air cargo companies have had to carry lighter loads and take more circuitous routes and therefore uh, charge their customers more. Now, even before this started, the pandemic had played havoc with the so-called global supply chain, and that's gotten worse. Shipping rates you mentioned already. Yeah. Uh, companies are not willing to insure carriers that go near war zones, and that of course, it costs much more for container shipping. Yeah, boy, the ramifications. They didn't. Yeah, I just wanted to cheer you up uh, <laughs> today. Well, the sun is shining here for a change, and I appreciate that. It's still windy and cold. Anyway, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, some of the outer concentric circles of what the war in Ukraine really means to the world, and it's including to the environment and climate change. It's all been put on the back burner. Our guest today is Rajan Menon who has written in Tom Dispatch, Why the Conflict in Ukraine is a Disaster for the Poor of the Planet. Um, the West has been really successful in, in, in keeping the focus on the fact that war is in Ukraine. All the blue and yellow flags all over the place. And that's it's nice. How significant in terms of the big picture, however, that we're talking about is General Austin's framing of the war as he says, it's intended to weaken Russia. How significant 
is that in historical context and other contexts? Yeah, no disrespect to General Austin, but no, sometimes there are times when I <laughs> wish that our senior leaders would say less rather than more, and this is one of those occasions. You're dealing here, whether you like it or not, with a nuclear power that has invaded a neighboring country. The United States and its allies are supporting the resistance of the invaded country. Fair enough. But if you say that now the goal is not simply to help the country that's been invaded repel the aggression, and even that, by the way, is not clear now, does it mean that the Russians should vacate all territories seized since February 24th when the war began? Or does it mean we dial the clock back to 2014 and they must yeah. also evacuate Crimea, that mm -hmm. peninsula that sticks into the Black Sea, or the two statelets that they carved up in the region of Donbass right. in eastern Ukraine if you move the goalposts? So if you say the goal is not really cut Russia down to size, to weaken it, and that this is not any longer about Ukraine, it's about a much bigger issue. Um, are you creating a situation in which this war could spill out beyond Ukraine and possibly involve in some form the use of nuclear weapons? And I'm not talking about a Russian nuclear attack on the United States, that's not likely, but the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. One other example. So some a set of geniuses in some bureaucracy leaked to the press that we have been providing the Ukrainians information on how to kill Russian generals and also help them down, although the Ukrainians use their own missile, the yeah. Moskva, which is the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. Mm -hmm. Now, I have no idea whether that intelligence was given or not, but the fact that it was leaked and printed by the press clearly made its way into President Putin's ears. Mm. And what did the Russians do, predictably? They spun this as an example of, this has never been about Ukraine, this has been a war about Russia from start to finish, look what they're doing, and this, that, and the other. But once you start helping the other side kill Rus Russian generals, and you can say all you want to, that look, they are the aggrieved party, they are the ones who've been attacked, and I completely get this. The question is, do you want to keep the war as limited as possible, or do you want to say and do things that, whether you intended or not, raise the risks? And I think you would agree that the first choice is the saner one than the second choice. Well, when does sanity ever lead foreign policy? Well, there's that. <laughs> And there's still... You're a hard man to please. <laughs> hey, I've worked in government, believe me. Uh, that, uh, you know, he, one of the goals of, of Putin was a neutral Ukraine, and understandably to reduce any threat of NATO at Russia's gates. They've been invaded from the West in the past. Uh, but the opposite has occurred. Uh, Poland, Slovakia, many others... Uh, have seems become closer with NATO. And part of that, I also wanted to ask about the non-aligned nations of Africa and South America, where there's a lot of resources and a lot of potential there, tremendous potential. What about those non-aligned nations of Africa and South America in terms of the economic future? Are they now forced to take sides? Where does this leave them? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, let me answer it in two parts, because again, you introduced yep. uh, NATO, and I wanted to say something about that. Um, let's take NATO and Ukraine. The Europeans were not particularly keen about admitting NATO into Ukraine, nor were the Ukrainians as a country united on joining NATO. It was a divided country because to make a, a simplification out of this, Eastern Ukraine contains a larger proportion of either ethnic Russians or Ukrainians whose language is Russian. Mm -hmm. And therefore the country was divided on the question of where its destiny belongs, neutral, moving toward Russia, moving toward the West. Every election you have had in Ukraine, if you look at the electoral map, parties that were seen as, quote, pro-Russian in some fashion, they did much better in the East. But in 2008, at NATO's Bucharest summit, George W. Bush, Bush the younger, said, well, we should put Ukraine and Georgia's membership of, to NATO, um, in NATO on the table. Europeans were not particularly happy, but of course, the United States rules the roost. <laughs> And at the end of the Bucharest meeting, a summit declaration was um, promulgated saying NATO's door is now open. There was no formal membership action plan map that was provided, but the door was open. That, I think, became kind of a turning point because of one simple thing. If you take the 14 other countries that along with what is today Russia constituted the Soviet Union, there is no country that comes even close to Ukraine in being the critical country mm -hmm. by virtue of size, by virtue of a common border, by virtue of history going back thousands of years, all kinds of reasons. Not, none of that entitles Russia to decide what Ukrainians can and cannot do. That I want to make clear that that's not sure. my point. Yeah. But I think the reaction in Russia was about as predictable as if we had lost the Cold War and the, the Soviet-led Warsaw Pact moved into the Western Hemisphere and said, you know, we're thinking of offering Mexico membership. And of course, you Americans shouldn't think about mm. this being hostile in any way. Now, if you look at the history of this country, it's it's unimaginable that we would have said, oh, yeah, that that's fine. You know, Mexico <laughs> has the right to choose its destiny. Uh, international policy just doesn't work that way. So the the Russian reaction was wholly predictable. And part of the reason that the Europeans didn't want to do it is because of that. And mind you, after having said they'll admit them, 14 years later, they couldn't make up their mind. You know, my kids can choose from a menu in much more rapid time than that. right? So they, they, they couldn't make up their mind, which shows that there was never any intention. But that decision ramped up the tension. And as the crisis of the end of last year and this year began to mount, and the question of NATO membership was still on the table and no negotiations on it were forthcoming, mm. the crisis grew and grew and grew and the chance of war increased. Now, this interpretation is widely contend, uh, con, uh, uh, disputed because there are many people on the other side who said, no, 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 this NATO expansion has nothing to do with this Putin is by nature just an aggressive expansionist creature. But Putin himself, early in his presidency, suggested that maybe one solution to this would be that Russia would join NATO. Yeltsin suggested the same thing, by the way, his predecessor. 
Well, and the whole idea of a of a different sort of uh, uh, union that uh, I guess Gorbachev uh, was was talking about. Correct. That that Correct. that went by the wayside, and. I did prematurely, I suppose, ask about the non-aligned nations of Africa and South America. Oh, right. I forgot about that. No, yeah. Can I just say a word about that? Oh, please do. Yes. So here, the conflict, and I, when I say here, the West, United States, Canada, Western yeah. Europe, has been presented, especially by government, as this Manichaean good versus evil, morality versus immorality, rule-based order versus rejection of rule-based order apocal rivalry and confrontation and everyone is obliged to choose sides and in some respects they have yeah. so in the march vote to condemn russia in the general assembly there was a lopsided yes vote but some countries did not join right. china now you could say well china is a dictatorship and an ally of russia and what could we have expected from them but other countries for example like uh, India did not, and uh, South Africa did not. And since then, yet other countries like Saudi Arabia or Indonesia, or Pakistan, have said, we are not going to choose sides in this war for two reasons. We don't see this as the defining problem for us. And also, isolating Russia and sanctioning it and threatening it is going to raise the temperature and reduce the possibility for a negotiated settlement. So the idea that what how the war appears in the narrative here is the way that it appears to everybody else is a little bit like thumb-sucking or solipsism. It's sort of seeing your, your view of the world as an extension of everybody else's view of the world. Oh, that's so true. And it ain't like that. It ain't necessarily so. This uh, they they have to choose. Uh, I mean, yeah, no, let me right. give you an let me give you sure, an sure, example. Sure. So the, the the until recently, the, the person who was the prime minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, uh, said when the EU was goading him to come out and condemn the Russian invasion, said, and I'm not necessarily defending this reaction of his, but it's just an emblematic of the way this is viewed. He he said. What are we, your slaves, that we should just automatically do what you tell us to do? So we're not going to just follow your lead on issues time and time again. There's another problem that's going on. Uh, the the rule-based order has been invoked, but countries have asked, have you, the West, and particularly the United States, always faithfully followed the rule-based international order? Well, what about the preventive war against Iraq in 2003 that was done without a UN Security Council resolution, after which the Convention on Torture was violated, the Geneva Conventions were violated. What about the intervention in Kosovo? Yes, there was, there were atrocities going on there, but a Security Council resolution was required. It wasn't given and NATO said we're intervening anyway. What about the intervention in Libya that has left it a wasteland and exceeded the UN Security Council Resolution 1973, which said it should stop Gaddafi's attack on civilians, but not engage in regime change. So there is a view out there that the, the rule-based international order is invoked when convenient mm. and set aside when it's not convenient. Now, I'm not saying that narrative is necessarily correct, 
but it seems to me that to simply attribute it to blind faith in Putin or being brainwashed by his propaganda reduces countries to this other countries to the status of idiots who have no sense of their own interests and their own way of sorting things out. Yeah, I mean, the, the history of uh, rule-based international order. Boy, one could have a long discussion about that, so many different examples. And we're talking again about how the entire world will be affected. And obviously, obviously, the cost of, of uh, trying to make Ukraine whole again is, is massive, huge. There's the world banking system. The sums that will need to be spent... I believe it's in the world economy's interest to help return Ukraine's economy. Uh, but I, I don't know how many billions we might be talking about. And the, the world banking system, the IMF and the World Bank, uh, they they lend money all over the place, uh, places that are on the edge now. Anyway, Egypt, Pakistan, Tunisia. Uh, what, what about... Uh, where that money is going to come from and how that might affect the other nations that depend on uh, loans. Yeah, there's that. I mean, the World Bank and the IMF are not bottomless piggy banks. <laughs> They're funded by wealthy countries. Yes. And um, the West, the United States in particular, has a great deal of say in who gets what, when, where, and how. And the focus, for reasons that I fully understand, will be on Ukraine. So two things have to happen. Other countries get less or more money has to be contributed to these countries. I, I absolutely do think, by the way, that there's an interest in helping rebuild Ukraine, not only for humanitarian reasons, but to leave a country like that in a state of desolation. I mean, I'll just give you one example. There's a city, a, a small town actually called Izyum, I-Z-Y-U-M, in the province of Kharkiv, K-H-A-R-K-I-V, in northeastern Ukraine, the, the Russians recently overran. 80%, 80%, all residential buildings there have been either flattened or badly destroyed. In the southern city of Mariupol, mm -hmm. which has been likened to a Latter-day Guernica, which is the Basque yeah, town that the, 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 yeah. the Germans and the, uh, and the Italians bombed in World War II, uh, virtually the entire city has been destroyed. And so um, you, if, you, if you leave a country in that situation, and U Ukraine, mind you, is one of the largest cities, I'm sorry, the largest countries in Europe, setting aside Russia for a moment, because its status is ambiguous. Is it Eurasian? Is it Euro right. uh, European? Whatever. It's been this long history. It, it just won't do to say, well, they're on the road. And you can say, well, the Russians have to pay for it, but who's going to make them pay for it? And, and so someone's going to have to do something, and that someone is going to be the wealthy countries of the world, there's no question. And when it comes to making uh, Ukraine a member of the EU, you're already seeing some hemming and hawing and if, and this happening most recently from Macron, who said, well, it's been given a, kind of a, a certain different status, and over time we'll figure it out. The realization is that if it becomes an EU member, there will be an obligation on the EU ah. above all to pony up the money uh, to to rebuild it. And we're talking pretty serious money. You know, $100 billion there and $100 billion here, and pretty soon you're doing serious money, isn't it? Right. 
It's affecting so many different ways. And uh, we, we talked a little bit about the, the non-aligned nations, which are remaining non-aligned. What about that other economic powerhouse, the Asian Pacific? How might their political and economic power be affected by this war in Ukraine? Well, they're going to be affected uh, as well, although the latest projections by the IMF and, and major banks is that they will face um, somewhat less dire consequences than us. But that said, their major trading partners are, well, there's China, of course, but then there's the United States and the rest of Europe. So they can't very long take the position that, you know, we're going to be insulated from this because it's going to be confined primarily to the U.S. and Western Europe and Canada and to other parts of the world and it's not going to affect us. Uh Well, they they sell a lot of products in these other parts of the world, so it is going to affect all of them. Mm. Now, you know, I'm not predicting some global great recession here or something. I'm just making the point that I don't think we've seen the economic ramifications of this consequence play out in their full form, not by a long shot. And I think the worst is yet to come. I always love optimism on the show. <laughs> I'm afraid I you know, I'm afraid you're right. And you know, there was no, I wanted to major in English literature when I was a, when I was an undergraduate. In times like this when I studied things like this, I wish I maybe I had. <laughs> Shakespeare's tragedies can be somewhat depressing, but not, not compared to this. You can say well it's it's fiction, it's fiction. Yeah, true. True, true, true. Um what you know, I when when COVID-19 started there was some hope. There was like clear skies. People were not driving as much. There was some hope that COVID-19 would kick the world's butt into gear to free itself from climate-destroying fossil fuel use. Uh, now the West has embargoed Russian oil and gas. What about that? What about, you know, the... the the climate change, which is really the biggest issue that affects the entire world. Yeah, you know, here's the irony, right? If we have to look to a pandemic as a way to reduce our addiction <laughs> to hydrocarbons, we're really in bad shape. We're really in bad shape. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, when the a hundred years from now, when the history of all of this is written, I think climate change will be looked upon as the one grave challenge mm. that everybody knew about mm-hmm. but couldn't come together as a collectivity that shares an eco-space mm. to do enough to figure out because there was a constant bickering about whose fault is it, who should pay for it, who should cut first, who should cut how much. Now, I get all the complexities of this, right? But it's like having a village having a common pasture right, where everybody grazes their cattle and there's no central government to decide who can graze how much. And so everybody grazes and everyone knows that endless grazing by their flocks will deplete the pasture and turn it into desert or whatever. What is everybody's interest to graze as much as possible? Absolutely. Because <laughs> if, if, you're, if I cut back on my herd, you'll just send yours out to graze more. And why would I want you to do that? It seems to be the way it works. And uh, the stakes in this war in Ukraine may be higher than nearly all of us imagined in the beginning. You write, 
and I, I got to quote you on this, good stuff. The world's poorest bear no responsibility for the war in Ukraine and have no capacity to bring it to an end. Other than the Ukrainians themselves, however, they will be hurt worst by its prolongation. The most impoverished among them are not being shelled by the Russians or occupied and subjected to war crimes like the inhabitants of the Ukrainian town of Bucha. Still, for them too, ending the war is a matter of life and death. That much they share with the people of Ukraine. End of your quote. And it seems like all Americans are strongly, emotionally supporting Ukraine against Russia. And our government, of course, is arming them heavily. There were other options we missed a while ago. Are there other perhaps more productive approaches that you might suggest if we had sanity in our foreign policy? Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, that's water under the bridge. And to use the cliche, we are where we are. But your point about the least vulnerable having the least ability to end this or do anything about it. If you read what the World Food Program has been writing about Yemen now, where it's uh -huh. active and it is the deliverer of sustenance without which people would literally starve to death. Mm -hmm. Their costs in terms of what they're spending per day have gone through the roof because it's much more harder to procure food. And there's a humanitarian crisis mounting in Yemen. Now, the crisis in Ukraine is serious. It's being shelled. People are suffering. But how much, by way of headlines, have you seen about what is going on in Yemen right. as a consequence of rising prices in food? I'm not saying this is due to someone's evil doing or that every country should get equal space, but there's so much room only on the front page. And I think most Americans probably don't hear or read enough about the effect that this has had on Yemen because there is a kind of geographical, shall we say, particularism in our coverage of news. Uh, it's less true of the, the media in other, whenever I go on, programs outside the United States. There's a much greater curiosity of what's going on elsewhere mm -hmm. uh, that is not true of the media here, even though we have a very powerful and excellent media in some respects. But, you know, Yemen has been kind of forgotten. Yeah. But really, I mean, literally people are, are, are going to face even greater levels of starvation, and God knows that they've had enough for the last five or six years already. And, and yet, here we, we go, just uh, it's uh, largely about oil, the West embargo of Russian oil and gas. What do you think the effects of, of that might be uh, in terms of, you know, the, the economy and the environment? I mean, we're not getting off oil at all. Right. I mean, whether the great lesson that will be taken from this is that, my goodness, you know, we have to be less dependent on oil. We have to really push toward alternative energy, uh, whether that'll be the less or not is yet unclear. This could prove a blip. Once the Ukraine war is settled, things settle down, the dust, so, as so to speak, settles mm. down, and mm. we begin business as usual because there's a huge amount of work to be done. Alternatives in clean energy, replacing the addiction, especially in this country, with uh, to driving via automobile 
with mass transit, yeah. uh, a huge cultural and technological shifts that have to occur. Mm-hmm. And in democratic countries, uh, I'm glad we live in one and can't be told, go here, there, and do this as you could in a dictatorship, but it's harder to, harder to do. The question of how do you raise the money? Should there be a carbon tax? Should coal be phased out? If so, what happens to people who produce coal? I mean, you can see the discussions in Congress between people like Manchin, mm. say, and Ed, Ed Markey. And uh, there, there's a Grand Canyon between them about how you solve this. And there are ways to do it. The money that we're spending for one version of national security, i.e. military, military, military. If you took a small portion of that and emulated uh, the New Deal and really had some could build back better to get us off of oil... I would think that might increase our national security even more. Well, uh, Correct. There are those who believe, by the way, just left to itself, the market will sort it out. It might sort it out in its own time, but not soon enough. Yeah, <laughs> I don't trust that for sure. Very interesting stuff. Good to, to fill in uh, what's really not known and the stories behind the stories. Thank you so much for being with us today, Raja and Menon. Uh, if people are interested in uh, following your stuff, is there something on the Internet that uh, you can point them to? Uh, well, I'm available on TomDispatch.com, ah. and my Twitter handle is Rajan underscore Menon underscore. Okay. Thank you so much. and uh, Thanks very much, Bert. All right. Of the old museum, I take a holy vow to never kill.